0: All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is Ataz, your Quentin Tarantino in space, speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. So this month, we're going to be talking about The Star King by Jack Vance. This is a book that was originally published, actually not as a book, but in fact in serial form in Galaxy Magazine in 1963 and 1964. And doing this book, doing The Star King, is really exciting because it means that Jack Vance is the first author we're repeating on ETAs. Uh, We did his novel, The Languages of Pow, about, uh, about a year ago now, I guess. And this is not at all what I expected when I started the show. It's not what I would have predicted for ATAS. I thought we were going to be reading a lot more Brandon Sanderson and N.K. Jemisin than we have, which so far has been zero, but that may change eventually. And The Star King is the last book that I'm taking from this current Patreon vote. It came in tied for third with the John Belair's book, The House with a Clock in Its Walls, but because this one was nominated by a Patreon supporter, it got the edge there. Also on that vote, of course, as there always is, was an Elder Sign section, and we coincidentally had some Jack Vance on there as well. And that's the the very first story in his dying Earth cycle, and that story really ran away with it. I mean, it received more votes than any other item in any of the categories on the ballot. It was almost unanimous, in fact, that Brandon and I should cover that on Elder Sign and I'm actually recording this episode before Brandon and I have gotten started on that, but our intention is to keep putting Jack Vance's Dying Earth stories on the Elder Sign ballots until we've exhausted them. And of course, right, this is really just part of our ramping up to do the Book of the New Sun over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. And although it's 2023 when you're hearing this, it is 2020 when I'm recording it, so it is possible that there are five or six Jans Vance stories over on Elder Sign And if you're a Vance fan, I hope you'll go check those out. But as much as I am eager to do the Dying Earth stories, and it is in fact what I'm going to be reading later tonight, so it is very much on my mind right now, we are really here for The Demon Princes. So let's get into The Star King. The Star King is the first in a five-book series known as The Demon Princes, and these five books chart the adventure of the protagonist, the hero, I guess, Kurth Gerson, as he goes on a spacefaring quest for vengeance. This story does take place in our future. It's quite far in our future. It's the the 36th century, so a whole millennium later than Star Trek. And it's a future in which humanity has colonized other solar systems and created an interstellar civilization called the Ecumen. And I guess this might actually be where Ursula Le Guin got the idea for use in her Hainish novels, though I, I never realized that before. And that might not be true, though. This book does predate those as far as I know. The particulars of the Ecumen as a a set of institutions aren't really going to matter very much to the plot, but I will say that it is fairly decentralized. Uh, Planets are largely autonomous and themselves don't necessarily seem to always have a centralized state of their own. So there are lots of different communities and lots of different types of communities in this setting. And while we don't explore many of them in this book, my expectation is that the other books, the other four books in this series, are going to get into some of these weirder communities and, and do some storytelling around some social science fiction concepts. But that is getting way ahead of ourselves. I feel like that's a thing I've done a lot already in the first five minutes of this episode. So let's get back to Kurt Gerson and That Space Vengeance. So in addition to this interstellar civilization, there is also a region of space called the Beyond, which is exactly what it says on the box. It's known and sometimes settled space beyond the Ecumen, and essentially, it's the Wild West. There are lots of human settlers and lots of human settlements in the Beyond, but there is no government, and so there are a small handful of space pirates who have carved out private empires for themselves here in the Beyond. And this is really a, a form of predatory lordship, basically, in which these space pirates use private armies to terrorize communities and individuals as well into handing over cash or goods or services in exchange for not being terrorized anymore. It's, it's really all a big protection racket. And here I'm thinking back to some of the things that we talked about when we did John Crowley's book, The, the Deep, just a few months ago. And here is where we can get our backstory about Kurth Gerson. 20 years ago, his settlement said No to a space pirate. They resisted the demands that he was making. In return, and as promised, the the five space pirates, these predatory lords who run the beyond, team up and destroyed this settlement as an example to everyone else living in the beyond. Now, of course, not everyone died. Uh, there were some survivors here. Kurt Gerson was one of them, though he was just a little kid at the time. But his grandfather also survived, though, though no one else in the Gerson family did and the two of them went to Earth, where Grandpa raised Kurt Gerson to be a homicidal maniac obsessed with avenging the deaths of his family and giving him all the training necessary to be Batman or, or Daredevil or Green Arrow or, well, you get the picture. I don't need to keep naming superheroes here. And so our story opens as Kurt Gerson is beginning his quest for vengeance. He's going to go after and, and, and kill these five space pirates, the, the demon princes of the title of the whole series of books. But one of the gimmicks here is that he doesn't know the identities of everyone involved in the destruction of his home and his his family, and he has to find out, and he has to do that by tracing the small scraps of evidence that he has. He doesn't really even quite know where to start. But we do get here the first adventure, one small adventure in which Kurth interrogates and then also kills a low-level flunky in order to get the name of one of the executives. And really, our story gets going when Kurth is on the trail of the first demon prince, uh, a man named Atel Maligate, uh, known as Maligate the Woe because he's such a cruel space pirate. And he gets that name here in this uh, inciting incident, maybe we could say. That's not quite right. But this, this first adventure, maybe is the better way to put it, a sort of prologue. Before we continue, I do want to dwell on the name Etel Maligate or Maligate the Woe here, just because that is actually a name change. When Vance published this novel in serial form in Galaxy Magazine, this character was actually named Grendel the Monster, but he changed it to Maligate the Woe for the the novel publication, which was only just a year later. Uh, So that's what we're going to call him here, even though as a medievalist, I definitely like Grendel better. Okay, so the deal is this. Kurt Gerson now knows that Maligate the Woe is one of the people responsible for the murder of his family, but he doesn't know who Maligate the Woe is because there aren't any photos or records or, or anything like that. And the space pirates don't have houses on planets. They, they just live on big spaceships uh, surrounded by other big spaceships and, and so on. And so the quest for Maligate here begins at an inn. It's a space inn, but still an inn. And this definitely has a very serious RPG feel to it. And this inn is on a small planet in the beyond where only one man and his very extensive family live and, and run this inn for travelers. And specifically, they run it for people on their way to and from the acumen. So explorers, merchants, so on. At this bar, where Kurth Gerson largely has the place to himself, he meets an explorer with a tale to tell. Uh, we'll talk more about that in the next segment. But what matters right now is that this explorer works for Maligate as an independent contractor, and he has found an uninhabited planet that he doesn't actually want to tell Maligate about. He, he doesn't want Maligate to take the log from his ship, even though he's legally bound to hand that over to the person who has contracted him. And now this guy is here at this inn, expecting to meet Maligate and, and try to give his money back. And we really learn all of this because the explorer thinks that Kurt Gerson is Malagate, or, or at least his agent. And then some people who actually are agents of Malagate do show up, and the explorer is killed, and they take his ship. Except they don't take his ship. They take Kurth Gerson's ship because they're the same make and model and I guess also the same color. So now Kurth Gerson has something that Malagate the Woe wants, this log. And that means that Kurth is going to be able to work his way up to, to and and to kill him. And all of this is really just the first three chapters of the book, but we can move very quickly through the rest of it. The explorer's logs in a type of code that needs a fancy decryption machine to read it. And that fancy decryption machine is owned by whoever sent the explorer out and that, of course, wasn't legally Maligate the Woe, because that's not how crime lords work, right? Instead, Malagate has worked through the administrative machinery of an academic department at a university back in the Ecumen, and so that is where Kurth Gerson goes next. At this point in the story, then, there are two parallel developments happening. First, Kurth is trying to discover Maligate's secret identity and also his current location. But second, Maligate's agents have discovered their mistake, and so now they are actively trying to take the log from Kurth. So there is a lot of fighting, a lot of sleuthing going on in the the second act of this book. Ultimately, two things happen. First, Kurth decides that Maligate must actually be working at the university, that he must either be one of two professors he's identified, or he's this honorary provost. But he can't figure out which of these three people he actually is. Second, Kurt starts up a romance with this academic department's secretary. Now, at first, this is just because that's what detectives do when they're trying to get information about an institution, but later, it's because he really likes her. Also, it's because he's lonely, because, you know, he's a young man who's never had any friendships or any romances because uh, his grandfather trained him to be a psychopathic assassin instead of uh, to be a fully functioning human being in a community. But all right, that's getting ahead of myself again here. So... Because Kurth has begun this romance with her, she is now a target for Maligate's agents. And they kidnap her. And she's taken off world, though Kurth doesn't know where. So now he's got that mystery, too. But in the end, he solves both of these cases. Of course, he sleuths his way to a secret planet. He rescues the woman. And then he hatches a scheme to get the three academics to travel with him to this new planet that the murdered explorer had discovered. And while there, he figures out which of them is Malagate but he doesn't end up killing Malagate himself. Once he's been revealed, Malagate runs off into the wilderness of the planet, but is very quickly killed by the indigenous life. And that is essentially the, the end of the story, though I have left out a ton, some of which we can talk about in our themes and motifs segment, uh, which I think we can just jump straight into. Because we are doing so much Vance all at once here on the network, I mean, at least in terms of our recording schedule, where I'm doing two bits of conversation about Jack Vance in the span of four days, one of the things I've been doing also, besides just reading the texts, has been looking at some of the the scholarship on Vance. And so I want to start our theme segment here by taking a cue from one of these pieces of scholarship that I was reading alongside The Star King this week. And this was a, a small monograph by Jack Rollins, who I had no idea had written anything about Jack Vance. But Jack Rollins is famous as uh, having been a professor of English at California State in Chico. Uh, What he's famous for is his book about how to teach writing called The Writer's Way. Teaching writing is something I have done in my life. And I really enjoyed this monograph. So this is going to come up as we continue to cover Vance here on the network. The second chapter of this monograph is called Vance's Worlds, and I'm just going to read a few sentences from it. Vance's worlds are overstuffed, struggling to contain more alien cultures, flora, colors, and smells than the page can hold. Furniture spills forth from the pages like bric-a-brac in the home of an inveterate antique collector. A world Alfred Bester would spend a novel sculpting, or a more thrifty writer would milk for a series, Vance strikes off in one dazzling blow and is soon bounding off to another, never to return. It is central to Vance's art that more is thrown away than kept. This was definitely my experience of the Star King. And so the two things that I want to talk about in our themes and motifs segment here are almost tangential to the main thrust of the book, which is really concerned with Kurth Gerson as a type of hardboiled detective, but then does also have some awesome ideas that are just sort of tossed out there and then forgotten. And I want to start with the topic that's going to allow me to talk about a number of plot and setting elements that I completely left out of the recap and That is the question of how we define human or how we define person, Uh, how we decide who is a person and who is not, or, or what is a person and what is not. This is a theme we've looked at a lot here on ETAS and, of course, also across the network. Now, Vance does not tackle this head on. He doesn't even really raise this as an explicit question. But nonetheless, there are two significant parts of this setting that force us as readers to think about what it means to be human. The first is Atel Malagate himself, Malagate the Woe, who is in fact not a human being. He's not a Homo sapiens. He is a Star King. That's the, the title of the book, of course. And Star King is a species of sentient humanoids, many of whom can and, and do pass as humans in the ecumen. But even though they look like us and have sentience and speech and so on, they're quite different, they're quite distinct. And I just want to read from the novel here to show you how Vance presents this, and, and, and this is a conversation that Kurth has uh, out on his date with the, the department secretary, who has heard of Star Kings, but, but doesn't really understand what they are. It's not a matter of disguise. They are men, almost. The general speculation goes like this. A million years ago, the planet Lambda Groose 3 was inhabited by a rather frightening assortment of creatures. Among them was a small amphibious biped without any particular tools for survival except awareness and an ability to hide in the mud. The species faced extinction half a dozen times, but a few always managed to hang on and somehow scavenge in existence among creatures who were more savage, more cunning, more agile, better swimmers, better climbers, even better scavengers than themselves. The proto-Star Kings had only psychical advantages. Self consciousness, competitiveness, a desire to stay alive by any means whatever. And Kurth goes on to explain that the, the Starkings reproduce asexually and they are able to transmit acquired characteristics to their offspring, uh, which is to say, they engage in Lamarckian evolution, though Vance does not call it that. And Kurth then says their basic drive is the urge to outdo, to outfunction, to outsurvive. The biological flexibility coupled to a rudimentary intelligence provided the means to implement their ambitions. They consciously began to breed themselves into a creature which could outperform their less resourceful competitors. Now, all of this is absolutely fascinating on its own, but it doesn't answer the question of why they so closely resemble human beings. Here, Kurth explains the, the dominant hypothesis among scholars, which is that an extremely ancient and now extinct spacefaring civilization, of which there is a lot of material evidence in the galaxy, it turns out, uh, this spacefaring civilization, for some reason, brought Neanderthals to the Star Kings planet. And because they were successful there, the Star Kings mimicked these Neanderthals, and so now they resemble hominids from Earth. This is an absurd idea, of course, but Kurth says it is actually less absurd than the idea of convergent evolution, the idea that hominids would evolve on two planets without any contact with each other. And this story raises the question then of what it means to be human. Is it DNA? Is it physical appearance? Is it behavior? Now, I say the story raises these questions, but that's not really quite true. Uh, What it does is it prompts readers to wonder about these questions. But, and as Rollins has described it, the the text itself, Vance, that is to say, never poses these questions and never gives us a story in which answering these questions is a plot point, though I thought this was the most interesting part of the book. And apparently, as you you are probably anticipating I am about to say... So did Gene Wolfe, who, it turns out, took one of his many cues for The Fifth Head of Cerberus here from the Star King. One of the principal questions that Wolfe asks in The Fifth Head of Cerberus is, what if we aren't actually humans, but in fact are shape-shifting aliens masquerading as humans? Would we still be people? How could we tell? And there are even more specific connections between this passage and The Fifth Head of Cerberus, but I'm going to leave those unexplored just in case you haven't read Fifth Head yet, which you should definitely do. And hey, please take Brandon and I along with you. Uh, We did almost 40 episodes on that book. There is also another part of the Star King that Gene Wolfe has drawn on in crafting the speculative world, or or, or maybe the, the speculative world within the speculative world of the Fifth Head of Cerberus. And for this, we're going to have to go to the newly discovered planet that is the real driver of the plot of the Star King. And we get most of this really early in the book, when the explorer tells his tale to Kurth Gerson here at the uh, the Fantasy Inn. The planet he's discovered is an untouched paradise, devoid of sentient life, untarnished by sentient life is is really how he presents it, in fact. Nonetheless, there are creatures here. There's flora and fauna. The major fauna that he encounters are walking trees, and he calls them dryads, though this is probably just because he didn't know about ants. And these dryads, these walking trees, have strange relationships with other types of trees, uh, also with insects, and with some kind of egg or worm or, or something anyway that lives in the ground. We never get a clear picture of this ecosystem, but it turns out that these things are all actually the same organism, just in different life stages, though you would never guess that any more than you would think that cicadas are the offspring of the maple trees they climb up, uh, and that they will someday become maple trees themselves, for example. Now, again, there are some really fun parallels here to Gene Wolfe, and I definitely wish that I had had the Star King in my toolbox when we covered Fifth Head. But hey, that's why we're getting started on Vance's Dying Earth Stories a few years before we get to the Book of the New Sun, All of this stuff really fascinates me, and I do wish that Vance had done more with it. And and maybe he will, as The Demon Princes continues. But as it stands, these fascinating alien worlds are really just here for decoration. They don't actually matter to the plot. Uh, They don't connect with anything else that's happening in the story. And I think that is a bit of a shame. And I have very much the same criticism about the other thing that Vance introduces at the beginning of the book. And this is the question of whether homicidal vengeance can be morally good. Or, we could put it another way, is it morally good to kill an evil person? Vance raises this question in the form of a letter from Kurth's grandfather, a letter delivered only once the grandfather is dead. It's a, if you're reading this, I must be dead type of letter. Uh, and again, I think this is just worth reading aloud here. The law of man is bounded by the limits of the ecumen. Good and evil, however, are ideas which encompass the universe. Unluckily, beyond the pale, there are few to ensure the triumph of good over evil. Actually, the triumph consists of two processes. First, evil must be extinguished. Then, good must be introduced to fill the gap. It is impossible that a man should be equally efficacious in both functions. Good and evil, in spite of a traditional fallacy, are not polarities, nor mirror images, nor is one merely the absence of the other. In order to minimize confusion, your work will be the destruction of evil men. What is an evil man? The man is evil who coerces obedience to his private ends, destroys beauty, produces pain, extinguishes life. It must be remembered that killing evil men is not equivalent to expunging evil, which is a relationship between a situation and an individual. A poisonous spore will grow only in a nutrient soil. In this case, the nutrient soil is beyond. And since no human effort can alter the beyond, you must devote your efforts to destroying the poisonous spores, which are evil men. It is a task of which you will never see the end. Now, look... This is a philosophical gauntlet. I mean, maybe a whole crate of gauntlets just thrown on the ground here. I mean, just dumped in a pile. This is great fodder for debate about morality and virtue. Also, not to mention (laughs) great fodder for debate about psychological trauma. Kurth has been hearing this philosophy from his grandfather his entire life and has embraced his training as a cold-blooded assassin. He's embraced the fact that he's been raised to be nothing more than his grandfather's weapon— This is all on its own—a totally tragic story. I I wouldn't wish this for anyone, right? Imagine a child whose family has just been murdered. Would you want that child to find a new home with a new loving family, or would you want this child to become a trained assassin with no friends, or hobbies, or comforts, uh, no connections, no community? Obviously, you would want the first thing, right? Because doing the other thing is child abuse. And so, the protagonist of our story here is a victim of child abuse, as well as other traumas. And we are going to follow him out into the world. And this is an awesome setup for this story. And indeed, on the very next page, we find that Kurth Gerson himself is unsure if he really wants to be the Punisher or or Batman or whoever. Uh, We have a lot of these characters in our literature. When Kurth kills his first victim on his quest to find the space pirates... He feels misery and misgivings, and he wonders if he will feel this every time. But this is about all we get of this question for the rest of the book. It's raised about 20% of the way in, and then it is largely dropped Along the way, we do get some hints at this in Kurth's feelings about the academic secretary and also in his emotional response to seeing the paradise planet, which he thinks of as having been untouched by evil, uh, and he is longing to live in a world like that. But even though Vance does give us a little bit of tension intrinsic to Kurt Gerson along these lines, it never transforms into anything more than tension. It never grows into a a full-out conflict. It's never fully the story of Kurt's inner conflict with the person he's been nurtured to be and the trauma that he has suffered. This does come back at the end a little bit, though, when Kurth revisits the, the paradise planet to really make sure that Malagate is dead because of some of the, the speculative fiction, high concept stuff that's going on on the planet that I, I didn't really mention at all. And he does this in an act that seems like he's choosing to be the person his grandfather wanted him to be. In fact, let me just read the last paragraph of the book here. It's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. This is some great writing. Gerson once more looked up and down the valley. This world was no longer innocent, it had known evil a sense of tarnish lay across the panorama. Gerson sighed, turned, stood looking down at Warweave's grave. He bent, seized the seedling, pulled it from the soil, broke it, cast it aside. Then he turned and walked up the valley toward his spaceboat. And I do love this ending. It is a beautiful gut punch of an ending here. But really, it's just these three points along the way that we get this story. And I think that Vance could have done more with this throughout. But although I found the theme to be muddled, here in, in in this book. I, I am hopeful that the rest of the series is going to take this up, that, that Kurth Gerson will have a redemption arc, that maybe we'll get some engagement with that crate of philosophical gauntlets that Vance throws down right at the beginning of this story. And the next book in this series is called The Killing Machine. So it seems like Kurth is going to go deeper into his own villainy before he can come out again. And that has all of the hallmarks, all of the makings of a great redemption arc. And I'm looking forward to getting a chance to explore this story further if that's something that uh, that Patreon supporters and listeners want us to do. All right. I know this was the themes segment, but that I have been veering into the strengths and weaknesses segment here as I've been talking about the, the relative merits of the way that Vance has handled these these two themes that were the themes that were interesting to me, the two themes that I picked out of the many that we could have done. So we may as well move into our actual strengths and weaknesses segment now. I want to start just by saying that I really enjoy this book, even though I have been critical of the way that Vance has handled some of these themes. And I do think that the main weaknesses of this book are simply that Vance has teased these really interesting ideas and then not developed them, right? If, If those ideas weren't actually so awesome, I wouldn't have felt disappointed that all we get is that tease. I mean, this planet of Dryads is awesome, and that's why I wish we'd spent more time there. That's why I wish that Vance had gone back and written more stories set on this really cool planet, this fantastic setting. And I guess I'm glad that Gene Wolfe went ahead and did that for me. The Star Kings also are totally awesome. I would definitely read an entire series about a team of scientists trying to figure out how the Star Kings evolved, and especially if at least one of those scientists is a Jesuit priest. And if you want to write that book, I will be your biggest cheerleader and your first beta reader. I mean, seriously, take me up on that, please. But the book that Vance actually wrote is also pretty great. I had a ton of fun following Kurt Gerson's schemes, and especially following his detecting in fact, and as you probably know by now, the only type of story that I like as much as I like Jesuits in Space is hard-boiled detective fiction, right? I mean, how many detective stories have we covered on this show by now? And Kurt Gerson is a lot of fun in that role. And something I learned while reading this Jack Rollins monograph on Vance is that Vance also wrote detective stories under uh, another name— And I'm feeling pretty compelled to check one of those out. Uh, Maybe I'll do a Patreon episode about it or or, or something, since I I can't justify reading anything unless I'm going to podcast about it somewhere. And I have to say that the the dialogue here is all pretty snappy. The inn at the beginning of the story is just awesome. I mean, it functions both as a classic fantasy inn and a hard-boiled cocktail bar all at the same time. I mean, that is just phenomenal. So I would love to check out what Vance is doing in a non-speculative setting. But setting all of that aside, probably my favorite aspect of this book is the world building, which, of course, was also what I loved so much about the languages of POW. In fact, I'll say right now that even though the introduction to the languages of POW suggests that uh, the languages of POW is not a very good book and that even serious business Vance fans don't like it very much. I actually enjoyed the languages of Pow more than I enjoyed the Star King, which is no knock on the Star King. It it just points out what a weirdo I am. And the, the things that I go to speculative fiction for are perhaps different from what many other people go to speculative fiction for. There are 11 chapters in this book, and Vance opens each of them with anywhere between one and three pages devoted solely to world building. And he does this in the form of excerpts from texts, from this speculative world, and these include political speeches, narrative histories, scientific treatises, and, and also newspaper articles, and, and really other types of of writing as well. Every single one of them was awesome, and every single one of them had me really yearning for a story about the institutions and about the the peoples that are described in these little cutscenes. And so, in the end, as I closed the covers of this book, I was left wishing that every single page of this novel had spawned a spinoff story of its own, and this really left me wanting more. It's left me really excited to go check out Vance in short story form, which I have never done before, and which, fortunately for me, I am going to get to do in about three days in my future and three years in your past. But all right, since I'm clearly now thinking about the dying Earth, it is time to bring my review to a close. I do hope that you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or visit us on our subreddit and talk with me and talk with each other about the Star King. I left out a lot. Much of this book is concerned with human institutions. We've got a university. We've got a very bizarre system of policing the acumen. And I would love to talk about those. And in fact, I'm a little surprised that those weren't the things I chose to talk about here in the themes and motifs segment, given that I am an institutional historian, or at least have trained to be an institutional historian. And of course, I would absolutely love. Just be totally thrilled to have a conversation about the connections between the Star King and The Fifth Head of Cerberus. And if you have not read The Fifth Head of Cerberus, you are really missing out. It is the best book we have covered anywhere on the network, on any show, and that's probably going to be true for years to come. And if Fifth Head isn't enough reading for you, I also hope you'll join us over on Elder Sign for Vance's Dying Earth stories. All right, that really is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. Next month, we're going to be reading the first book, the first winner in another Patreon vote, and this is The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. This is a book that was massively on my radar for a long time, but which I have never read. It's a book that was nominated by uh, a Patreon supporter again. uh, In fact, it was nominated by multiple Patreon supporters, so I'm really excited to get to that. But until then... I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.